turn with me to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, there's red Bibles uh, in the little holders, usually right in front of you or nearby, and you can grab one there to follow along too. Uh, enjoyed the music this morning, enjoyed the special from Chris, and it reminds us Jesus loves us. And by the way, next Sunday, uh, next um, Saturday, there will be a hymn sing at 2 o'clock at the Lakes uh, housing area, and uh, it'll be at that gated community in the community building there, uh, as per usual. Uh, even though there is a service here at 11 o'clock for our Sharon, uh, I think that'll be over and people can still fo follow over to that place there. So I hope you are um, following what's going on in the book of um, Mark here, and uh, you'll take time to discuss these things in your salt groups. If you haven't, I encourage you to join a salt group, especially next week with our salt groups kind of growing, I guess you could say, and to the place that we needed to divide them up just a little bit. Uh, but they are really places of relational, uh, relationship building, I guess you could say that. Um, SALT stands for Saints Applying Living Truth, and it is an important thing. If you, you feel like you're not part of the church, join a SALT group, and that's where you really get that sense, is, is in that kind of a group. Um, we develop new leaders as a result of that too, and that's part of the purpose, and fellowship is deepened. And uh, it's a good place for families to come because the kids see that this is important for what the adults do as well. So we're going to see that again this morning a little bit more in our text now. So we are coming to the text where we meet Levi, who is called to be one of the um, apostles here. So we're going to start in verse 13. You can just follow with me quietly in um, the reading. And I'll go down to in chapter 2, verse 13, down through verse 22. So just follow along quietly as I read. And he went out again by the seashore, and all the people were coming to him, and he was teaching them. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he got up and followed him. And it happened that he was reclining at the table at, in his house, and many Tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many of them, and they were following him. Verse 16, when the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, Why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? And hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and they came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the, and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them in verse 19, he says, While the bridegroom <clears throat> is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in that day. Verse 21, 
No one sews a patch of unshrunken cloth on an old garment, otherwise the patch pulls away from it. New and uh, the new from the old, and a worse tear results. No one puts new wine in old wineskins, otherwise the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost in the skins as well. But one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at this passage this morning, we ask for your clear uh, direction and understanding of it as we look at it. <clears throat> Thank you, Lord, for the message that it gives us here about free grace, we pray in Christ, in Jesus' name. Well, Christ came to call sinners, and that is certainly what this is about here. And you see kind of some things that, a little illustrations towards the end of this section of, of Scripture after he has given Matthew or Levi the call to follow him. And really, I think as I've looked at this and tried to pull together just in a sentence or so what the main message is here, it really is about the gospel of grace is over and above the gospel of human works. That is the central essence of it, which often tends to be the way things go in churches. They sometimes can fall into that. And over the history of the, of the church, there are many times when that has happened. That's why the Reformation essentially happened. So here, the first thing you see is a very interesting portion, the personal story of Levi, and where he is called to follow Christ. And we see his calling in verse 13. To start off with, he, Jesus had gone out to the seashore again. He hadn't, couldn't go into the synagogues any longer because there was just too many people following him. He had been all over the area of Galilee and to many, many places, many synagogues. It got to be so many people followed, they just would meet wherever they could, usually away from the village, away from the synagogues where there was a little bit more room at this point. And people were coming to him, it says, and he was teaching them. Teaching was his ministry. He wasn't there to heal people. He was there to teach people. But healing was an attendant thing to confirm who he was and uh, to point to his message. And it says that he passed by and saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, which identifies who he was. We don't know much about Alphaeus, but obviously that was his father. And he was sitting in a tax collector's booth there, Levi was. And uh, Jesus goes by and he says, follow me. And he got up and he followed him. Uh, this was an area uh, in Capernaum. It was back to Capernaum now where Peter lived and where Jesus had really started out his Galilee ministry. And really that was his home base after he had left Nazareth where he really was uh, in danger there and they had rejected him. So he's back in um, Capernaum and Capernaum was a big fishing village. You know, uh, Peter and Andrew and disciples who were fishermen lived there and uh, it, was, it was a big center. They shipped fish out as far away as Rome, we understand from historians. But it was a great place for a tax collector to be because there was a lot of money exchanged. There was a lot of buying and sellings and they taxed even the fish there. I mean, the fish didn't have to pay the tax, but the people that caught them did, you know what I'm saying. So, uh, in, the mean, in the meantime, Christ was teaching in the midst of all of this, and um, he would go from one place to the other. And so Levi 
and by the way, his name means to be joined to. That was his name, kind of a Jewish name. From the tribe of Levi, we understand that too, of course. To be joined unto Aaron was kind of the idea behind the name. So each name has a particular meaning, and some of them have deeper meaning that we uh, find out when we look at it closely. But he's sitting in this tax booth, and uh, our tax shelter, you could say. What was it? Well, this was the customs house, another way of saying it. It was probably a little makeshift thing that they could move around, put wherever the people were coming and going. There was a lot of transportation from east to, to west that came from east farther over where um, Syria was and so forth, and they came down through across the top end of the Sea of Galilee, and they would continue on west, and then they would they'd buy and sell things, but they would be taxed, just kind of like, you know, when you go foreign country, sometimes they want to tax you for something that you're carrying along, and sometimes it's not legal what they do, but most of the time it's probably not too bad. I've seen situations like that myself a couple of times. But anyway, Levi is sitting in this tax booth, and he wasn't the only guy there. There was lots of them there. And um, very interesting as he was there. And uh, as he was there, people would come up and they would have fish, they would have whatever they were carrying, wherever they were going, and then he would charge a tax for them. And he was a Jew doing that as well. That's a big problem. That Jesus would come up and say to Levi, follow me. Big problem. Because tax collectors were bad people bad people, not good at all. They were the worst of the worst, especially to the Jews, especially to them. That is because they were traitors to their own people. Levi, being a Jew, had to get his certificate to be a tax collector by bidding on it and buying it. So history, history tells us that, he would make, that they would make a, a bid on the job of being a tax collector for a particular area under Herod Antipas, and if they bid high enough, then they would get the job, and that would mean their taxes would go, a certain amount of them, to Rome or to Herod Antipas, and then whatever they could get over and above that, they had to guarantee at least that much, because that's what they had bid for, but whatever they could get over and above the required amount, they could keep themselves. And they got to be quite wealthy. Well, the problem was, not so much the whole idea of taxation, the problem was that these were Jews taxing Jews to pay Romans. Not good among the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders and the Jews in general. Not a good thing. They did not like that. They hated them. In fact, they were so hated, the tax collectors were so hated among the Jews that among the Jews, it was considered all right to cheat the tax collector. Now, do you see a problem there? One cheating the other? It's like it was uh, systemic there. Well, at any rate, they got their job by doing this bidding, and they kept the differences when they collected taxes, and they got quite wealthy at it, and... Um, so did Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great, who was in charge of that whole regional area. And it was a difficult thing. Lucian the Greek says tax collectors were bad people. He describes them literally as adulterers, panderers, flatterers, uh, sycophants, which means boot lickers. 
That's what it means. And they were the kind of people you just didn't want to have anything to do with. And Jesus had just chosen one. Follow me. And it was noted that he did. They were the lowest of the low among the Jews. And their own people hated them. As bad as it was to touch a leper, it was worse, worse if you touched a tax collector. Know what I'm saying? Well, in our country, it isn't too different. Some people don't like tax collectors. I happened to be at a funeral a couple of uh, weeks ago of a beloved friend from our church in the early days and seeing a lot of our old friends that we hadn't seen for a lot of years and some of them were over there. This is in East Tacoma where they lived. And a young man came up to me. He wasn't young anymore. He was in his 30s and he had been a young man in our church and he introduced himself and I, I recognized him right, in eight, right away. And his name was Joel, so we started chatting. Nice guy. He's always been a good guy in church. And I says, where are you working? He said, I work for the IRS. <laughs> you know, I had kind of an instant reaction to back up. <laughs> and uh, do I owe money? You know, several people came up to him. that They were joking about that, too. It doesn't have a good reputation, does it, IRS? Well, I won't go into that, but... Uh, that is a sense in which we tend to think of a little bit that way ourselves. But it was unthinkable, as far as the scribes and Pharisees were, that someone would follow the Messiah who was a tax collector. A tax, it was absolutely unthinkable. By the way, in our living nativity, that's one of our most popular scenes. Our tax collector is right there. Raise your hand. He's with the IRS in Israel, and he is the guy that collects the taxes, and I love the way that scene goes, Chris, where everybody comes, the Jews come in, they're upset with the, with the tax collectors, and they're, they're exchanging words, and they throw their money into the bowl finally, and the soldiers rough them up a little bit. It's kind of a good picture of kind of the way things were, really. It's not something we cooked up. It really kind of pictures what it was. But Jesus calls him two words. Follow me. And if you look at that, you see what, it, what happened. He got up and followed him. Nothing in between, just called him. And um, we don't know what Levi knew beforehand. I would conjecture that he knew something about Jesus. He'd heard him. Jesus had been all over Galilee, been preaching in the synagogues, and then later on the, on the seashore, wherever he went, he was preaching and teaching, and it's likely that he heard a little bit about this. Levi wouldn't have heard it in the synagogue because he couldn't go into a synagogue because he was a tax collector. He would be unclean. He would be unclean. But Jesus calls him, follow me. And I believe the Holy Spirit was working in his heart, as he always does. And what he simply did was follow him. He just got up and he left. He left everything behind. Now think about that for a moment. Everything that he had. He was a wealthy man. He had a good job. People didn't like him, but he probably didn't care about that to start off with. But now things have changed. I believe he probably knew something about Jesus, and therefore, as a result, he followed him. By the way, it's a good thought just for a moment. When you become a Christian, should you change jobs? 
should you change jobs? Um, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 7, he says, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. In other words, he doesn't just encourage you to jump out and go do something else and go somewhere else. Not necessarily that way, because you have a ministry right then and there. You do have a ministry right then and there, whether you're, you know, you've got a job with... Uh, um, Microsoft or some company or you know uh, some other kind of construction work whatever don't just jump up and leave give some time to think about that and pray about that you may have a ministry right there maybe for the rest of your life or maybe only for a short period of time and with two words Jesus called this guy and he just got up and left but he didn't leave he didn't leave his friends stranded not knowing what happened because we come down to verse 15. Now in verse 15, we see there's a celebration going on in verse 15. It says, it happened as he, that would be Jesus. Usually in the English, it capitalizes the pronoun there to show that it's referring to Christ. It happened that he was reclining at the table in the house, in his house, that would be Levi's house, and many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples. So there they are, they're in his house, probably a big house, because there were a lot of people there, and that would be standard if you were a tax collector. You probably had more money than the average person, and you could have a good-sized house. So... They're reclining at table. Of course, the way they ate was different than the way do we eat. We, don't, we sit on chairs. They reclined on the floor with a couch-like thing that was kind of soft, and they could lay on it, and they could lay down and lean on one side, and their feet would be stretched out, and it would be very relax, relaxing, uh, perhaps a little behind them. And a lot of people were around this area. They would call it a table, but it wouldn't be quite like the table we think of. But the food was there, and they were... Uh, they were at this table, and there were a lot of these tax collectors and sinners also, makes it very clear, and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples. So some of his disciples are there with him. Peter, probably. Andrew, probably. These were guys who were fishermen. I think it'd be a little tense because their fish got taxed. And now Levi's been called to follow with them. I wonder what that meant doesn't tell us much about that, but think that that's a kind of, kind of thing that could happen there. And there were many of them there, it says, and they were following him. There were people that were following him, others' disciples as well, it appears there. And it was a celebration, and they were eating. What kind of a celebration was this? Was it a going-away party? Well, I don't think it was. We don't know for sure, but it's probably not a going-away party. Certainly not a birthday party. It was probably a party that Levi um, threw for his tax collector friends so that they could hear the gospel firsthand from Jesus, because they probably really hadn't before. And this would maybe mean that some of them would begin to follow. And we knew that there were some people in very adverse professions that did follow Christ eventually. So... There they are, verse 15. But there's a concern now. Verse, verse 16 is the concern, concern that the scribes and the Pharisees had. Verse 16, it says, scribes and the Pharisees saw this. And by the way, this is the first time that the Gospel of Mark mentions uh, the Pharisees. 
They have not been mentioned before. They're kind of in the background. But um, the other Gospels do allude to them a little bit earlier. But Mark doesn't bring it up until now. And um, they're kind of lurking around the outside edges. They don't want to get too close. They don't want to touch the tax collectors. That would be unclean. And they wanted to be clean because they were the religious leaders and so forth, the scribes of the Pharisees. Some of the scribes were actually Pharisees. And they, uh, they saw these people there, and Jesus was eating with these sinners and the tax collectors, of course, which is, tax collector would be the same thing as a sinner as far as they were concerned there. And so they asked, why is he doing this? Why is Jesus uh, eating and drinking with these guys? Why is he eating with these tax collectors and sinners, you know? And uh, you have to understand the Pharisees, who they were, to understand that most clearly. The Pharisees... The word really means the separated ones, the, the separated ones. We've, we see them often in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, and so forth, in the Gospels. They were the formalists, the um, free thinkers. They were kind of like the Puritans in a way. Um, so they were those who were considering themselves the uncorrupted ones among the Jewish people. They wore special gowns that they loved to go around in, special hats and things. Uh, the Pharisees, we don't see them in the Old Testament, but sometime in the period between the ending of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, they emerged during the period of what we know of as the, the Maccabees, historically, if you know that group of people. Sometime in that intertestament period of several hundred years, they arose there. And they believed certain things. There were the Pharisees, and then there were the Sadducees, but the Pharisees believed in the resurrection. That's how they were different. They did believe in the resurrection. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection, and the joke is that's why they were sad, you see. Uh, but, they, but these guys did believe in it, and they were very, very separated. They were very much legalists here in every way. So they really stood for the strict observance of the laws of Moses, the Mosaic law, and they were very legalistic, and um, it was the aim of really Jesus to call men to the law of God as supreme guide of life in one sense, but these people went beyond that and they added all kinds of extra laws. So we know that there were all kinds of extra things that they did that they made law as well. It wasn't just the Ten Commandments, it was far beyond that. Certainly all the uh, ceremonial law they would have adhered to. And so um, they multiplied minute precepts of all kinds beyond what the Bible had or the scriptures that they had at the time and the distinctions and so forth. And they hemmed the Israelite people in with all these things. So they were just, they couldn't hardly move on a Sunday, or a, which would actually be the Saturday, Saturday, the Sabbath for them. We call it Sunday, but their day was a Sabbath. On a Sabbath, you could only walk a certain number of feet. You couldn't push certain buttons. You couldn't start fires and so forth. And that's still true today in Israel in some places. Some places. So their instructions were numerous and they were trifling. And um, they had really lost sight of what the Old Testament was about because of what they heaped upon it. And they saw these tax men. 
celebrating with Jesus, and they were concerned deeply. So they, they make the comment there, they say in verse 16, why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? They ask the question, well, Jesus hears this now in verse 17, and he answers. How's Jesus going to answer this? Verse 17, the comeback. I call this the comeback. Um, in verse 17, it says he was probably listening to these Pharisees in the distance a little bit, but close enough that he could hear them far enough away that they couldn't touch any tax collectors and be made impure. So he said to them, it's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. There is really probably the key verse in this whole story. Now, you might say, doesn't everybody need a doctor? I think we do sometimes, but he's making a statement, obviously, here, to say that these people thought they weren't sick. The Pharisees thought they didn't have any sin. Sick with sin, that would be the idea here. They didn't see themselves as the sinners. They saw the tax collectors. And Jesus also now, since he was connecting with them, he would be part of that group. I like what Franklin Graham, I mentioned this a couple times already, but I'll say it again. He told the people at the meeting in Tacoma a couple weeks ago, he said, if you think you're not a sinner, then you've already sinned because the Bible tells us there's none who has not sinned and all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So perish the thought, everyone is a sinner. Everyone is a sinner. And these tax gatherers, were, but also the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But Jesus says, look, he says, it's not those who, like we could say, think they are healthy, who need a physician. They actually do, but they didn't want one. They didn't want anything to do with what Jesus was doing. He came to call these sinners who were open to the fact. They knew they were sinners and so forth. By the way, maybe you think you're not a sinner, or maybe you are a sinner, but you're not that bad. You're not that bad right? Take your Bible and turn to Romans 3 just for a moment. Romans 3, 10 through 20 really is probably one of the best passages to show us our sinfulness. We call it the passage that shows our total depravity. I call it the men's warehouse passage, the men's warehouse passage. And that's why, the reason I call it that is because George Zimmer, do you remember his advertisements on TV about suits and the men's warehouse? And uh, he would get on there and he said, you're going to buy my stuff. You're going to like the way you look. I guarantee it. I guarantee it. But this passage of scripture shows something different. What he was talking about, the way you look on the outside. By the way, he wasn't so hot afterwards. He got fired by his own board. <laughs> but anyway, when you look at this passage of scripture, it's talking about how we look on the inside. How we look on the inside. And when you look at this passage of Scripture, you're not going to like the way you look. I guarantee it. I guarantee it. It says in verse 10, Romans 3, 10, as it is written, there's none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. It starts with the mind understanding. This is like an MRI. It's like a, it's like a CAT scan or an x-ray machine. It's really looking at the inside of us. 
none who understands. They have all turned aside. Together they have become useless, and there is none who does good, and there is not even one. He moves down from the head a little lower. He says, their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving, and poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness, would be coming up from within. And he goes all the way down to the feet on this MRI. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. That's a description of humanity after the fall. It's really a description of all of us, and it's not to be trifled with. We may not be as bad as we could be, but we have that potential in some way. That's what depravity is all about, that the, the sin problem has seeped into all of our being in some way, shape, or form. Romans 3 is a great place to see it. Galatians 3, 1 John 1, and so forth also. And so when we look at who we are, we don't need to think too highly of ourselves. I guarantee it. We are sinners also. And these folks didn't understand that. They thought that somehow through the ritual, through their added ceremonies and so forth, that they were righteous more than others. Total depravity, though, was where it was. And the tax gatherers were picking up on what Jesus said, and they were the ones who were really in the better position, and Levi was one of them. Levi was one of them. Now we come down to verse 18, the question of failing to fast. Verse 18, this is a big question that comes up. John's disciples evidently were there. John the Baptist's disciples, that would be. John is in prison now. So as John's disciples are without John around, they're a little bit aimless and they're somehow connected with the Pharisees. John's disciples, it says in verse 18, and the Pharisees were fasting and they came and said to him, that's to Jesus, why did John's disciples and the Pharisees and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? They asked Jesus that question. Why don't, you, why don't you guys fast? How come you're celebrating? How come you're having a big party, a big dinner party here, a really nice party and so forth? Why aren't you fasting? It probably was one of the days of fasting that they would have, one of the days of fasting. So under the Pharisees, they had established two days a week that they fast, Mondays and Thursdays. And when they fasted, they did all kinds of things. They sometimes put white powder on themselves. They wore ragged clothing sometimes to make it look like they were um, in terrible pain and so forth. And so it really became uh, a visual thing. They were showing themselves off, essentially. That's the idea. And... Uh, so they would, there were two days a week, and then there were other fasts and other kinds of rules and regulations too, and John's disciples knew about that because they had already been baptized and heard John's message of repentance and come to embrace that, and um, they knew that the Pharisees fasted. That's what they had heard before, but they hadn't heard the full picture. They hadn't heard the full picture from Jesus yet. And of course, John the Baptist now is in prison. 
So they're fasting along with the Pharisees. So if they fasted um, twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays, then in a year that would be 104 fast days, wouldn't it? Well, in the Old Testament, there was only one fast day, and that was the Day of Atonement. Only one fast day that was required. And now it's 104 plus the Day of Atonement, 105. And by the way, that um, was the reason for, part of the reason for the Great Reformation, because before 1517, when Luther shook things up, there were about 161 fast days in the church calendar that was primarily the church that people understood, which was the Catholic Church of the day. So it, it kind of happened all over again down through the centuries, and it tends to repeat itself to some degree in some way, shape, or form. So a day that they fasted would be a day that they made themselves look bad, and they didn't eat, and they made all kinds of weeping and wailing and so forth. They made a big show of it. But fasting, by the way, is not wrong. It's not wrong. It's not required, but people do fast. We see in the book of Acts, chapter 13, chapter 14, we see fasting going on. When there's something critical that's coming up, people are so taken up with praying for something, they don't bother to eat. That's one way. And maybe you're just exercised about something, you want to pray for it, and you make a private fast, and you don't need to tell anybody because the idea was that it was a private kind of thing. So the question of failing to fast comes up in verse 18. Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but Jesus' disciples don't? Why is that? What's Jesus' answer? This is, this is good. I like this. This last part of this text, verses 19 through 22, gives three illustrations that Jesus gives. They're a little bit cryptic. I call them Christ's cryptically clear answers. He had a way of doing that sometimes. And um, it takes a little time to kind of think through this. But if you follow with me, first of all, he has an illustration about a bridegroom. At weddings, bridegrooms don't fast. I mean, that's obvious. This is a day of celebration. Jesus said, while the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? Obviously they don't. You, don't. you celebrate at a wedding. You eat and drink and you enjoy yourself because it's a day of celebration. So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom won't be there, he says. And that's a day in which you can fast. Jesus was alluding to himself here as the bridegroom of the church, which is the bride that had not yet been formed yet, actually. And there would be a day when it would be formed, not, too in, the, not in the far, too far distant future. And on that day, um, when Christ would go to the cross and so forth, um, people would be in grief. That's a day of fasting. When the bridegroom is taken away, it says in verse 20. So it's cryptically referring to the coming of Christ's own death. Christ is referring to himself there. He's very clear about this. We can see that in hindsight, probably wasn't quite so easy. Three years would go by, and then he would go to the cross, he would die. But you know what? After the resurrection, it's really a day for celebration again. 
it's really a day for celebration. So we don't live in a historic period of fasting for 2,000 years in grief. Christ was resurrected, he's on the throne, and he rules and reigns on the earth, and the Holy Spirit is with us, and he says, I will never leave you, and uh, I'm not going to let you go, I'm not going to let you be left alone, but there's a coming day when he's going to come back, and that's really going to be when the celebration is in Revelation 19, if you want to look, you can, Revelation 19, 7, it says, let us rejoice talking about the day when he returns. This is the great passage on the second coming of Christ. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. That's the church. There's a whole lot of eschatology. That's the doctrine of the last things here, talking about when the church goes to meet Christ in the last day and he returns after the tribulation period. And then in verse 9 it says, Then he said to me, Write, that is the one who was speaking to John, um, the apostle who was writing here on the Isle of Patmos. He said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. That's going to be glorious. Are you invited to the Lamb's Supper. There's a lot of people that I know of who have died, friends of mine, some recently and some in the past. I'm going to see them and have dinner with them. Isn't that a great thought? Great thought. The marriage supper of the Lamb, that's going to be a day of celebration like none other. The sinners who have been made right with God through Christ's blood and death and faith alone in Christ alone are going to meet together around that day. In a sense, we do now because we know the end of the story, but that day is going to be a day that we can't even fathom. So he tells these guys. Bridegroom is here. He's here now. He was here then. And we don't need to fast now. That's why we're not fasting. But cryptically saying there was going to be a day when he wouldn't be here briefly and he would come back again later. We know in the fullness of the revelation of God. There's a, there's a second story here as well. In verse 21. Verse 21. It talks about new garments that are sewed onto old garments will tear the old garments. No one sews a patch of unshrunken cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it and the new from the old and a worse tear results. It's a pretty easy illustration to understand. You have an old garment that it's been washed, it's been worn, it's been fixed and so forth, but you want to patch it up so you put a nice new piece of material on it and you sew it on there. The new material is strong, when the old gets stretched, the new doesn't stretch, the old stretches and tears, and it's not good. It's bad. So he's basically saying something about the laws of God and that the Pharisees had cooked up. If you try to put the new garments of Christ's teaching of who he really was and would be on top of what 
the Pharisees and the religious leaders had added on to the old, including all the ceremonial laws, not to mention the moral law, that would be like the Ten Commandments, they're going to have problems because they put stuff on there that didn't belong. So new garments on the old just is going to cause the old to be torn and not be in good condition. So uh, all their Judaistic traditions that they had formed outside of what they knew of as scripture uh, and the simplicity of faith would be a problem. By the way, in the Old Testament, people were saved by faith just like they're saved by faith in the New Testament. They weren't saved by works or keeping the law. The works were to bring them to a place of repentance, just like we saw in Romans 3. So um, the law was there to bring them to a place of repentance. They were saved by putting their faith in the hope of the coming Messiah, which we see first of all in Genesis 3.15. And in the New Testament, we see the Messiah who has come and we look back and we're saved by faith also. Same theology of salvation there. Very simple illustration. You don't put the new garments of Christ's teaching on the old garments of the law plus the teaching of the religious leaders which had gone way beyond. Then it gives a third little illustration here in verse 22. A third illustration in verse 22. New wine and old wineskins will burst them. Very similar illustration here. Very similar. The one that they would understanding since they were... Uh, having dinner there at his table. They probably had some uh, flasks of a wine, and flasks would not be glass. They would be goat skin bags, bladders, that they would make into things that they would have their wine in. And so what Jesus is saying, he says, you don't put uh, a new kind of wine into an old wineskin. Old wineskins, once again, would be more brittle and, you know, un able to stretch much and but you put this new kind of wine in it and it's still not done fermenting and so as it ferments a little bit more it builds up pressure and pretty soon kaboom you know it it, it blows up <laughs> the wine skin there so to speak otherwise the wine will burst the skin and the wine is lost the skins as well you lose both the wine and the skins and but one puts new wine into fresh wineskins that stretch with it. Fresh wineskins. Now to me that doesn't say this, but it sort of hints at the church, doesn't it? That's the way it should be anyway. The Old Testament law is not bad. The Old Testament law is still good. The Ten Commandments. I have a copy of the Ten Commandments on my sunroom door given to me by my beloved friend in Ukraine. It's in Russian, but it's there. We know what it is. And um, it's a good thing. It's still wrong to kill and so forth and so on as those commandments are there. But the ceremonial laws, all the additional things that were added, that's not there in the Old Testament. Grace has always been the salvation way in both Old and New Testament. And that's why, like we said, the Reformation happened is because it got lost in all of that. And it came back to grace alone in Christ alone and for God's glory alone. So Christ's message was new. It was new to those people. It was a new thing and it was totally different. And they didn't like it. They didn't like it that he went to the sinner's, Levi's house, 
to eat. Levi is the person here that really we see that gets saved in this. He followed Christ. He left everything. He left his tax business. He couldn't come back to it because once you leave it, somebody else takes it. The next guy on the list gets it. And you don't go back to it then. So his income would have stopped right then and there. It wasn't like Peter and Andrew and the fishermen, those guys, they could go back and go fishing again. In fact, they did after the resurrection. They, they could go back to their fishing business, but not, but not Levi. Levi left everything. Just a little bit more of a sacrifice we could see there. And so what did Levi get for following Christ when Jesus said, follow me? And I want you to think about yourselves and talk about this in your salt groups if you're in a group this week. What did Levi get for following Christ? One, he got poverty. He went from wealth and riches probably to poverty because he couldn't make any money anymore like he did, like I just said. Number two, he got clean hands and a pure heart. We could say he was forgiven. He found the forgiveness of Christ right then and there. And that's a big one. He got a new job. He got a new job too. He couldn't go back to his old job, but the Lord made him an apostle, an apostle, a messenger. So he becomes one of the 12 also. And his job would be to get the message to the Jews and the Gentiles as well. He got a new name. It's now Matthew instead of Levi. And I don't know how he got that name, but the other gospel writers mention it too. And Matthew means gift of God. Do you think it might have been because of what Jesus did? I think it did. I think it did. A new name. Sometimes we have new names when we come to Christ. You know, sometimes people give us names. My name is still Mark from before. Mark means one who follows the God of the Saturn or something like that. It's a, it's a Greek name. But uh, if you want to give me a new name, that's fine. I... I I'm fine with Mark, too, because Mark had his name, Mark, <laughs> followed uh, and, and wrote this gospel. And then uh, a new gospel is what he would write, the gospel of Matthew. The first gospel of the New Testament that we, write, that we read, you know, in the chronology of things. That's a pretty big thing to be given the responsibility to write that gospel. So he had also a new passion, a new passion. His life has changed. He's no longer tax collecting anymore. And we don't know all the details of this, but tradition, I always like to look and see what tradition says in history. And there's probably an element of truth in it. We wouldn't say that it's inspired, but it likely has some truth in it. When we look at the apostles, tradition says that he preached for 15 years in Palestine. And then after that, he went to foreign nations of Ethiopia and Macedonia and Syria and Persia and um, Parthians and Media were also mentioned. And he preached to all those places. And then he died in Ethiopia. Actually, historians generally seem to think that he died a natural death and was not one of the martyrs. And of course, that's out for grabs until the um, Lord comes back. 
probably some think that's more likely what actually happened to him. But he had a, a new passion, and he spent his life then, um, 15 years in Palestine and into all those other places, however long that took. That was what he got for following Christ. Question is, what do you get for following Christ, isn't it? What do you get, you know? Um, I know that when I committed myself to trusting and following Christ, it changed everything for me, of course. I'm not going to tell you that story again, but obviously lots of things changed, and, and it's a good thing. And I don't know where it will end. And um, if you're willing to follow Christ, maybe it means staying in the job you're in and the role you have now and your ministry is there, or maybe it means changing roles if you're in something illegal. Let me encourage you to not be in something illegal. And by the way, is it wrong to pay your taxes? Romans 13 says, no, pay your taxes. God knows if we don't. And you're just as bad as the Jews who didn't pay taxes to the tax collectors because they didn't like it. We are responsible to the governing authorities, Romans said. So how about you? If you follow Christ, what will you get for it? It's not what you get, it's what you can do for Christ, and that's really a better way of looking at it there. And so relationship with Christ replaces human religion is really what this text is saying. And I hope it makes a difference to you. Think about it. And if you have questions after the service, seek me out. I'd be happy to talk with you. And if you want to know about salvation, talk to myself or one of the others. But let's pray as we close. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for this uh, text that has been given to us and for a gospel, a new gospel according to Matthew now, gift of God. You took away what seemed to be a lot, all the wealth he had as a tax collector, but you also gave, gave him now something he never had before. The riches of eternal glory and the ministry that continues on even to this day. Bless our lives, our ministry as well, that we may be encouraged and exhorted to continue in that direction also, we would pray in Christ's name. Amen.